And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West. The most haunted city in the country. Well, today is January the 16th. 16th day of this new year. 349 days remain till the year's over with. And there are, of course, numerous events that took place on this date in history. 27 B.C., Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus granted the title Augustus by the Roman Senate, marking the beginning of the Roman Empire, which went on to become the dominant empire until it uh, divided into east and west. And then it collapsed, overrun by the what became the Germans. The uh, 378 in South America, General Siaj Kayak conquers Tikal, enlarging the domain of King Spiritual Owl of Teotihuacan. Well, in the uh, 1605, the first edition of uh, Book One of Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes, is published in Madrid, which gave us the appellation of tilting at windmills. The uh, 1707, the Scottish Parliament, Scottish Parliament ratified the Act of Union, paving the way for the creation of Great Britain. The... uh, 1757, forces of the Maratha Empire defeat a 5,000-strong army of the Durrani Empire in the Battle of Norella. 1780, American Revolutionary War, we saw the Battle of Cape St. Vincent. 1786, Virginia enacts the Statute for Religious Freedom, authored by Thomas Jefferson. 1809, Peninsula War, the British defeat the French at the Battle of La Corona. 1847, the westward expansion of the U.S. John C. Fremont is appointed governor of the New California Territory. And if he could see what's happened to his, the area that he governed, he would just be appalled. The uh, 1878, the Russo-Turkish War, Battle of Philippopolis, Captain Alexander Barango with a squad of the Russian Imperial Army Dragoons liberates Plovdiv from the Ottoman rule. 1883 saw the Pendleton Civil Service Reform Act, which established the U.S. Civil Service System. And you can be assured, if you're related to somebody in it, or know somebody who's a good friend in it, you got a job. Um... 1900, the U.S. Senate accepts the Anglo-German Treaty of 1899, which the U.K. renounces its claim to the Samoan Islands. 1909, saw Ernest Shackleton's expedition finally find the magnetic South Pole. 1919, in what was a 
boon to organized crime. Nebraska became the 36th state to approve the 18th Amendment. With the necessary three-quarters of the states approving the amendment, prohibition is constitutionally mandated in the United States one year later. Then we've got, uh, in 1920, the League of Nations held its first council meeting in Paris. 1921, the Marxists left in Slovakia and the Transcarpathian Ukraine holds its founding congress in Lubakna. 1942, so the beginning of the Holocaust. Nazi Germany began deporting Jews from the Lotz ghetto to Chomnog extermination camp. Of course, we have all the ivory tower leftists who claim that the Holocaust never happened. 1942, the crash of TWA Flight 3, which included film star Carol Lombard. She was, as I remember, on a uh, tour selling war bonds, and her plane crashed. 1945, Adolf Hitler moved into his underground bunker, the Fuhrer bunker, and depending on which theory you believe, he committed suicide or escaped to uh, eventually, South America. 1959, Australianius Arias Flight 205 crashes into the Atlantic near Asto Piazzola International Airport in uh, Mar del Plata, Argentina. Killed 51. And in 1969, though I'm sure he thought he was doing something phenomenal, one of the most useless uh, actions. Czech student Jan Pollock commits suicide by self-immolation in Prague uh, in protest against the Soviets crushing the Prague Spring the year before. Didn't accomplish anything. Which is pretty much what the suicide bombers do. Other than killing a lot of people and causing uh, chaos and confusion, no lasting effects. Then in 1969, the space race, Soviet spacecraft, Soyuz 4 and Soyuz 5, performed the first ever docking of manned spacecraft in orbit and the first ever transfer of crew from one space vehicle to another. And the only time such a transfer was accomplished was a spacewalk. 1979, Iranian Revolution. The last Iranian Shah flees Iran with his family for permanently and relocates to Egypt. His son went to um, Fort Benning, as I remember. I saw his house. It was a, a mansion in a whole bunch of 1970s houses. 1983, Turkish Airlines Flight 158 crashes at Ankara, Esenbolga Airport in Ankara, Turkey. Kills 47 injured, 20. 1991, coalition forces go to war with Iraq, beginning the Gulf War. 1992, El Salvador officials and rebel leaders signed the Chapultepec Peace Accords in Mexico City, ending a 12-year Salvadoran civil war that claimed at least 75,000 lives. The uh, 2001, 
President Bill Clinton awarded former President Teddy Roosevelt a posthumous Medal of Honor for his service in the Spanish-American War. Now, that, of course, had a far-reaching effect. Please. Um, 2002, War in Afghanistan. UN Security Council unanimously establishes an arms embargo and the freezing of assets of Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, and the remaining members of the Taliban, which also accomplished very little. 2003, the Space Shuttle Columbia takes off from Mission STS-107. That would be its final one. It disintegrated 16 days later on re-entry. Killed the crew, of course. The uh, 2020, first impeachment of Donald Trump finally moves into its trial phase in the U.S. Senate. They were determined they were going to impeach that man. Uh, 2020 also saw the the Senate ratify the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement as a replacement for NAFTA. Well, we've been talking about Beyond Roswell, which is a book I wrote We also filmed the first season of a TV show that has not yet uh, been aired. And basically what it comes down to is there are many crashes other than the well-known one at Roswell. Um, Part of the issue is as soon as it's announced there's been a, a crash, you have a coalition of dilettantes debunk. the crash story and swear to the moon that it's a hoax. That's to get their 15 minutes of fame. If they can't get out in the field, get their hands dirty and get the truth, they just make it up. That's one reason I no longer speak at Roswell because one of the dilettantes uh, through uh, taking board members to lunch Uh, became the uh, authority on who should be allowed to talk and who shouldn't. Well, we're talking right now about uh, the crash in San Antonio, New Mexico. Now, the two young boys, seven and nine, were out looking for a... uh, a cow that had wandered off to have its calf. And after they found the cow, they also found a crash site. One of them um, picked up a piece of thin, shiny material. He says reminded him of the tinfoil on the old olive green uh, Philip Morris cigarette packs. Folded up, lodged underneath a rock, pinned there during the collision. When he freed it, it unfolded all by itself. He refolded it, and it spread itself out again, so he folded it back up and put it in his pocket. A number of people who have uh, found this type of uh, debris from crashes uh, point to the fact that uh, the material will, um, no matter how you fold it, will go back to its original shape. Now, I got a chance to talk to one of these two, 
at the Owl Cafe in San Antonio, New Mexico. And the story he told is pretty much uh, the same story that was told when he was uh, nine years old. Well, finally they were able to work their way to within yard, a few yards of the wreckage, fearing the worst and not quite ready for it. Uh, Remy recall, said he had his hand over his face, peeking through his fingers, and Jose, being older, seemed to handle the possibility of of uh, what they were going to find better. As they approached, they saw uh, movement in the main part of the craft. Strange-looking creatures are moving around inside, and said they looked pretty stressed out. They moved fast if they were able to wheel themselves from one position to another in just an instant. There was shadowing, expressionless, but definitely they were living beings. Now, Remy wanted no part of whoever or whatever was inside, and Jose wasn't uh, afraid as much, but I told him we should get out of there. Uh, Remy said he remembered he felt that concern for the creatures. I mean, they were like us. They appeared to be children. They were small. You know, the usual uh, descriptions of the greys with the big head, the hairless. But uh, Remy and Jose were scared and exhausted, and it was getting late, so they backtracked, ignored the cow and the calf. A little after dark when they climbed on their horses, and definitely dark when they reached the Padilla home. Faustino Padilla, of course, asked about the missing cow and got a quick report, and, and Jose said, we found something else. And they told the story. They said it was kind of hard to explain, but it was long and round, and there was a big gouge in the dirt. And there were these little guys running around. He called them hombrecitos, little guys. Well, the tale unfolded as Jose's father listened. And Jose told uh, his father they were running back and forth, looking desperate, like children. They didn't have any hair. Festino, apparently not that worried about survivors or medical emergencies. So we'll check it out in a day or two. Maybe something the military lost and we shouldn't disturb it. And he told Remy to leave his horse there and uh, he and Jose would drive him home since it's so late. Two days later at about noon, state policeman Eddie Apodaca, a family friend who had been... Uh, Summoned by Faustino, arrived to be at home. Jose and Remy directed Apodaca and Jose's dad toward the crash site in two vehicles, a pickup truck and a state police car. And when they couldn't drive any further, they parked and hiked to the hillside where the boys had initially seen the wreckage. When they got to the top of the ridge, they noted the cow and the calf had moved on, apparently headed for home pasture, and they walked a short distance to the overlook where they could see the wreckage and for a second Jose and Remy were dumbfounded wreckage was gone Remy asked what could have happened and Jose responded uh, somebody must have taken it Apodaca and Festino stared uh, intently but unaccusingly at Jose and Remy trying to understand and they went down the canyon and suddenly, as if by magic, they, they could see the object again. From the top of the hill, it blended into the surroundings. The sun was at a different angle, and the object had dirt and debris over it, which um, 
I mean, it's already probably been put there by someone after the crash. Um, Apodaca and Festino led the way to the craft and climbed inside with Jose and Remy were ordered to stay a short distance away. And Remy made the comment. He didn't see the hombrecitos. Um, Jose responded, uh, look at the tracks on the ground. It looks, it's like, it looks like when you drag a rake over it. The huge field of litter had been cleaned up, according to Remy. Who did it and when? They had no idea. And was it the military? Was it the occupants? Did somebody land in a helicopter? Uh, the main body of the craft remained in place with odd pieces dangling everywhere. And now it was time for Remy and Jose to get a lecture from the adults. Festino said, listen, don't tell anybody about this. Uh, Remy's own father just started working for the government. He doesn't need to know anything about it. It might cause him trouble at work. And Festino also worked for the government at uh, Boscadel Apache National Wildlife Refuge, and the ranch itself was on leased federal land. Festino was a patriotic man and honest to a fault in his dealings with the federal government, according to Jose. State policeman uh, offered his two cents worth. He said, the government's calling these things weather balloons, and I'm here to help Faustino work out the recovery with the government. They want this thing back. Remy responded, this doesn't look like a weather balloon we've seen before. They're a little almost like a kite. Faustino said, you're right. But uh, there's no question. That's what this, the government says this is, and the state policeman said it's big for sure. And Ambrisitos uh, questioned uh, Remy. Faustino said, well, maybe you just thought you saw them, or maybe somebody took them, or they just took off. So they headed home, the cow and the calf uh, worked their way back to home pasture in a day or two. Jose and Remy also look back at the incident from the perspective of time. Was the object a, that uh, required a flatbed truck and uh, an eye extension actually a weather balloon or an alien craft from space or maybe another dimension? The two men, who are now in their mid-60s, still have a piece of the craft and no other parts were buried by the military. And Remy also speculates about how the 1945 incident uh, fits in with the many sightings that were later reported in a um, ban across central New Mexico and some other states giving the uh, rise to uh, a UFO and flying saucer phenomenon that still is debated today. And of course the story of the UFO crash in 1945 didn't end here. There's a second part to the story, also written by Ben Moffitt. Um, it's called the New Mexico UFO Crash Encounter in 1945, Part 2. Now, in mid-August of 1945, before the term flying saucer was coined, Remigio Baca, who was seven, and Jose Padillo, nine, were... The first ones on the scene of the crash of a strange object on the Padilla Ranch west of San Antonio. 
that's a tiny village on the Rio Grande in central New Mexico. As you go up uh, heading to Albuquerque on the interstate, you can actually see it. And if you've never stopped at the Owl Cafe, you have missed a treat. Both Remigio, or Remy as his friends called him, and Jose believe they saw shadowy childlike creatures in a demolished oblong circular craft when they arrived at the scene. And they got there well before anybody else did. U.S. Army told the public nothing about the crash and told the Padilla family it was just a weather balloon. That's according to Remy and Jose, who are now in their 60s. And the two men insisted the Army went to great lengths to keep the operation under wraps, even concealing a, a concocting a cover story to master mop-up mission on the ranch. The cover operation actually started two days after Remy, Jose, Jose's father, Faustino, and State Policeman Eddie Apodaca visited the site on August 18th. It was then that a Latino sergeant named Avia arrived at the Bia home in San Antonio. After some small talk, Sergeant Avia got down to business. According to Remy and Jose's reluctance and what they heard subsequently from Faustino, conversation pretty much followed these lines. He said, as you may know, there was a weather balloon down on your property. We need to install a a metal gate and grade a road to the site to recover it. We'll have to tear down part of the fence adjoining the cattle garden. And Faustino said, why can't you just go through the gate like everybody else? And he said, well, the problem is your cattle guard's about 10 feet wide and our tractor trailer can't begin to get through there. We'll compensate you, of course. Sergeant also asked for a key to the gate until the military could install its own. Also wanted help with security. He said, can you make sure nobody goes to the site unless they're authorized and don't tell anybody why we're here? And uh, Festino curiously asked, why, why should I tell them? He said, what should I tell them? He said, you can tell them the equipment's here because the government needs to work a magnesium mine west of here. And uh, when I talked to Remy, he said there, that was to justify the presence of... of uh, road-building equipment. Went up to decades later on the Internet that he learned the Army told a lot of fibs along about that time. He said, I found another magnesium mine story. It was used to cover a UFO incident on the west side of the Magdalenas uh, near Detail in 1947, about the time the UFO Roswell incident took place. He said, I know for sure that the cover story was at least the second piece of misinformation they gave out in, the, in a month. Now, Remy himself is a former Marine, and he was chuckling and referencing the acknowledged false press release used to cover the Trinity atom bomb explosion as the first uh, misinformation. It wasn't long after the sergeant's departure that the Army was on the scene with road-building equipment. And long before the road was graded, those soldiers were at the the crash site carrying scraps of the mangled airship to smaller vehicles able to immediately get close to the, to, uh, the scene. And although they were warned by their father to stay away from the area, Jose, and sometimes with Remy and sometimes by himself, uh, sharing a, with a set of binoculars, watched from hiding as the military graded the road and soldiers prepared for the flatbed's arrival. Jose actually made off with a piece of the wreckage, which is still in his possession. Remy said the work detail wasn't too efficient. He noted from his experience in the Marines that military uh, parts had numbers and were carefully cataloged. 
He said the soldiers threw some of the pieces down a crevice so they wouldn't have to carry them. Then they'd take, kick dirt and rocks and brush over them to cover them up. Uh, according to Jose, four soldiers were stationed at the wreckage at all times with shift changes every 12 hours. He said one stayed at a tent as a guard and listened to the radio. He said, I could hear the music. They worked for an hour and then took, locked the gate, climb in their pickups and go to the Al Cafe where they'd look for girls. I know because one of my female cousins was there and told me that. Once the flatbed was in place, the soldiers used wrenches to hoist the uh, intact portion of the wreckage in place. They had to build an L-shaped frame and tilt it to get it to fit into the tractor trailer because it bulged out over one side. Finally cut a hole in the fence at the gate that was 26 feet long to get it out. And off it went, shrouded under tarps through San Antonio, presumably the stallion site on what's today White Sands Missile Range, where according to Remy, it may still be today. So was this clandestine operation undertaken to recover a weather balloon? I doubt that. Was Jose and Remy uh, contend? Or was it something far more mysterious? Uh, Remy said, I think the term weather balloon was a euphemism, a, a catch-all for anything and everything that the government couldn't explain. Uh, Remy and Jose knew about typical military uh, weather balloons. Jose remembered that his father and he found seven of them before and after the 1945 crash. I always gathered them up and gave them back to the military. And they were nothing but silky material, uh, aluminum and wood, nothing like what they found uh, in that arroyo in 1945. Well, the balloons were not much more than big box kites, Remy said. They uh, sure couldn't gouge a hole in the ground. And remember, in 1945, despite the bomb, we weren't all that sophisticated. The Trinity bomb site... Uh, Fat Man was uh, the Trinity site bomb, which was called Fat Man. It was transported on a railroad car to the site. Radar was primitive or non-existent in some places. And maybe the military knew what they had. Maybe they didn't. And maybe they just couldn't say. Remy and Jose are convinced, and they say Faustino soon came to join in their belief that the object on the ranch was not a, no mere weather balloon, but an object of mystery. Festino, though, had no intent of challenging the status quo, nor did state policeman Apodaca, uh, whatever his beliefs might have been. And why would a mere sergeant be sent to negotiate with Faustino Padilla on a mission that involved something more than a routine weather balloon flight? Remy said he wore sergeant stripes, but that didn't necessarily mean he was a sergeant. He was Latino. He was sent to San Antonio because he could communicate with the locals, and he wouldn't stand out. And finally, why would the military allow such cavalier treatment of the wreckage if it were a foreign or alien craft with scientific value? Remy said uh, in his interview, I don't know if they knew what they had. It was fairly crude craft with no parts numbers or on it. And the piece we have, we were told, is not remarkably uh, machined even for 1945. But there's nothing that says aliens have to travel in remarkable spaceships. Maybe they are at a primitive level themselves. 
He said, given what we know about distances in the universe, the concept of space travel seems far-fetched, I'll grant you. Maybe they got here by some method we can't fathom and they manufactured a crude object here to get around in this atmosphere. We hear about other dimensions and parallel universes. He said, I don't know much about these things, but I do know what I saw, which was some unlikely-looking creatures at the crash site. I know later other people in the area reported similar beings crossing their property, and I know the government was interested in keeping it quiet, whoever it might have been. Remy had studied the UFO phenomenon in his spare time over the years, especially as it pertained to New Mexico. He said the military opened the door at Roswell, and then they closed it, referring to a July 1947 report by the Roswell uh, Army Air Force Base information office about the crash and recovery of a flying disc that they reported had been bouncing around the sky. And then the base retreated by reporting it was merely a radar uh, tracking balloon that had uh, been recovered. Details of the Roswell event can be found in a 19-page Freedom of Information Act request by the late New Mexico Congressman Steve Schiff and related by the uh, general released by the General Accounting Office July 28, 1995 be found on the internet at uh, conspire.com uh, forward slash DS. The Roswell crash, which along with the sighting of a UFO south of Socorro by city policeman Lonnie Zamora in 1964, are the two most famous of a string of UFO reports over central New Mexico and, and all of UFO lore. From 1946 to 19, through 1949, 25 UFO sightings at may have contained extraterrestrial life or reported worldwide by the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Of these, seven came from New Mexico, including one near Magdalena in 46, Socorro in 47, Roswell, actually Corona, 1947, Plains of San Augustine in Catherine County in 47, Aztec in 48, White Sands in 49, and Roswell again in 1949. Another was in the pattern, too, on the Hopi Reservation of Arizona in 1947. According to Remy, there was a pattern of sightings and incidents in a band across New Mexico, Socorro and San Antonio are right at the center. Our 1945 sighting just adds to the base of information. It is intriguing, to say the least. If you and I witness, it becomes even more intriguing. Remy and Jose were excited enough to tell their story after more than 55 years, even knowing the problems that plagued Alani Zamora after his spotting a UFO near Socorro, which was less than 10 miles away in 1964. Jose and Remy would like to see a, an excavation of the crevice where a few odds and ends from their alien craft were tossed. The crevice was recently covered up by a bulldozer doing flood control work. Rather convenient, don't you think? And he'd like to have the part they have from the wreckage examined more closely by experts. They're not eager to surrender to anybody, though. Uh, Remy said, I've heard from others, if you give it to the government, you stand a good chance of never giving it back. The second piece, which Remy likened to the tinfoil in a cigarette pack, is gone. He said, I used it to stop a leak in a brass pipe under a windmill at our house in San Antonio in the early 50s. I used it to fill the uh, strip threads on two pieces of pipe. Remy said that he regrets using it now, but it was handy, and he didn't have anything else to use uh, to make that repair. 
He said, I kept in for years in an old uh, Prince Albert tobacco can in the pump house, and it was the nearest thing available. He said, the foil stopped a leak in the pipe for years. Windmill's gone now, and the property's no longer uh, owned by his family. Finally, Jose and Remy were asked why they decided to tell the tale today after nearly 60 years. Remy responded, it was uh, something you can never get out of your head. When we saw it, we never heard the term. UFO and flying saucers didn't become a part of language until June of 47 when a pilot named Kenneth Arnold reported nine objects in a formation in the area of uh, Mount Rainier. He said, we didn't invent this phenomena. We experienced it. Others have apparently had similar experiences. So uh, I believe Jose and I have an obligation to add our information to the to mix for whatever uh, benefit it might be. Now from New Mexico, let's turn to Cape Girardeau, Missouri. One of the most mysterious stories of a crashed UFO with alien bodies actually preceded the Roswell event by some six years. This case was first brought to light by uh, Leo Stringfield in his book, UFO Crash Retrievals, The Inner Sanctum. He opened a tantalizing account of a military-controlled UFO crash retrieval, which is still being researched today by a lot of people. Details of the case were sent to him in a letter from Charlotte Mann, who related her minister grandfather's deathbed confession, being summoned to pray over alien crash victims outside of Cape Girardeau, Missouri in the spring of 1941. Now, Reverend William Huffman had been an evangelist for many years, but had taken the resident minister uh, reins of the Red Star Baptist Church in early 1941. Church records do corroborate his employment there during the period in question. After getting his call to duty, he was immediately driven to the, the 10 to 15 mile journey to some woods outside of town. When he got to the scene of the crash, he saw policemen, fire department personnel, FBI agents, and photographers already wandering through the wreckage. Soon asked to pray over three dead bodies. And as he began to take in all the activity around the area, his curiosity was first struck with the sight of the craft itself. You know, I do think it interesting the government sent for a minister for the dead aliens. Charlotte Mann, uh, expecting a, a small plane of some type, Charlotte Mann said, I can't read my handwriting. He was expecting a uh, small plane of some type. So he was shocked to see the craft was disc-shaped. And from looking inside, he saw hieroglyphic-like symbols indecipherable to him. He was then shown the, the three victims, not human as he expected, but Small alien bodies with large eyes, hardly a, any sign of a mouth or ears, and they were hairless. Immediately after performing his duties, he was sworn to secrecy by military personnel who had taken charge of the crash area. And he witnessed these uh, warnings being given to others who were also at the crash site. We drive back at his home at 1530 Main Street, and he was still in a state of mild shock. 
couldn't keep his. As I was starting to say, once we got home, he was just overwhelmed by what he had seen. And he couldn't keep the story from his wife, Floyd, or his sons. This late night family discussion would uh, spawn the story that Charlotte Mann had heard from her grandmother in 1984's. Grandmother lay dying of cancer at Charlotte's home while undergoing radiation therapy. Charlotte was told the story over the span of several days, and although Charlotte had heard bits and pieces of the story before, she now demanded full details. The secrets of that fateful night were about to be revealed. And as her grandmother tolerated her last few days on this earth, Charlotte knew it was now or never to find out uh, everything she could before this intriguing story was lost with the death of her grandmother. She also learned that one of the members of her grandfather's congregation thought to be a Garland Froneberger, giving him a photograph taken on the night of the crash. Pictures of one of the dead aliens being held up by two unidentified men. Charlotte Mann gave in her own words a, an account of what she knew for a television documentary. According to what she said, I saw the picture originally from my dad who had gotten it from... Well, unfortunately, my little friend wants to be on the air so bad. But she barks every chance she gets when she knows I'm trying to do a show. Anyway, going to Charlotte Mann, she saw the picture from her father who had gotten it from his his father in the spring of 41. Saw that picture and asked my grandmother at a later time. She was at my family home, fatally ill with cancer. So they finally had a frank discussion about the issue. She said uh, Charlotte's grandfather was called out in the spring of 41 in the evening about 9 to 9.30. Somebody called out, uh, had been called out to a plane crash outside of town. Would he be willing to go to minister to people there, which he did? Upon arrival, it was a very different situation. It wasn't a conventional aircraft, as we know it. He described it as a saucer that was metallic in color, no seams. Didn't look like anything he'd ever seen before. Been broken open in one portion, so he could walk up and see that. Looking in, he saw a small metal chair, gauges and dials and things you'd ever seen before. However, what impressed him most was around the inside there were inscriptions and writings which he said he didn't recognize but were very similar to pictures he had seen of Egyptian hieroglyphics. He said there were three entities or non-human people lying on the ground. Two were just outside the saucer and the third one was further out. His understanding was that maybe this third one wasn't dead on impact. Been mention of a ball of fire but there, and there was fire around the crash site but uh, None of the entities had been burned, and so her grandfather prayed over them, giving each of them last rites. There were many people there, fire people, photographers, and so they lifted one up, and two men on either side held him up, and he stretched his arms out. They held him under the armpits, and as uh, Charlotte recalled from the picture she had seen, he was about four feet tall, appeared to have no bone structure, some very soft-looking. Had a suit on, uh, at least they assumed it was a suit. It could have been his skin, and 
look crinkled and soft like soft aluminum foil had very long hands very long fingers and she thought there were three fingers but she couldn't swear to that her grandfather on arrival said there were already several people on the scene two that he assumed were local photographers fire people not long after that the military showed up surrounded the area and took them off in groups separately and spoke to each one of them she said her grandfather didn't know what was said to the others, but he was told this didn't happen. You didn't see this. This is national security. Never going to talk about it again. Well, her grandfather, she said, was an honorable man, being a preacher, and that's all that needed to be said to him. So he came home and told the story to her father, who was there, and her grandmother and her uncle. And our mother was expecting at the time, so she was off in the bedroom. Her sister was born May 3rd 1941 so they're assuming it was in the middle of the to the latter part of May of April rather and uh, the grandfather never spoke of it again but about two weeks later one of the men who had had a personal camera he had put in his shirt pocket approached her grandfather and said I think somebody needs a copy of this the man said I have one and I'd like you to keep one so that's how it came to be that her grandfather had the picture to begin with. But he never spoke of it. You know, the people seemed to be very intimidated and frightened and paranoid about uh, what was said to them by the uh, military. Other living supporting witnesses include uh, Charlotte Mann's sister, who confirmed her story in a notarized sworn affidavit, and the, uh, the living brother of the Cap Girardeau County Sheriff in 1941, Clarence uh, Shade. He remembers hearing the account of the crash, but doesn't have a lot of details. He does recall hearing of a spaceship with little people on board. In regard to the depiction of the aliens, there are also uh, fire department records of the date of the crash. Information does, does confirm the military swearing uh, department members to secrecy and the removal of all the evidence from the scene by military personnel. Guy Huffman, Charlotte's father, also told the story of the crash, and had in his possession the photograph of the dead aliens. Showed the picture to a photographer friend of his, uh, Walter Wayne Fisk, and according to reports, he'd been contacted by Stanton Friedman, but wouldn't release any pertinent information. Charlotte had no luck getting Fisk to return calls or answer letters. It was rumored that Fisk was an advisor to the president, and if this was the case, that would account for his silence on the facts of the Missouri crash. Well, this particular case ends like so many others, but appears by all indications to be authentic. All who've come in contact with Charlotte Mann found her to be a trustworthy person who's not given to sensationalism and has sought to gain from her account. And there's still research being done on the, the Cape Girardeau crash, and hopefully more information will be uh, forthcoming. But uh, you might check out the book by uh, Leo Stringfield, UFO Crash Retrievals, The Inner Sanctum. Then, everybody uh, has heard about the crash at Corona, but that's actually the crash made famous by the Roswell incident. The crash site was actually not too far from the village of Corona, New Mexico. May Brazil uh, originally went to Corona to report the crash UFO, but, uh, I'm sorry, Mac Brazil. May Brazil was a uh, radio talk show host I'm familiar with. Uh, as I say, Mac originally went to Corona to report the crash UFO, but was referred to the county sheriff. In uh, 
and to find the county sheriff. He had to go to Roswell, New Mexico, and that's where the story picks up is that we're all familiar with. So the question becomes, what exactly happened? Um, the government's done a great job of covering things up for numerous decades, and of course the dilettantes have assisted. It's like with uh, Moore, who was Charles Burlett's writing party partner. There's a lot of rumors that he was actually a government disinformation agent who was hired to, shall we say, sensationalize this, the actual facts. Well, from crashes, let's talk about the infamous men in black who are said to turn up in areas where there have been crashes. And thanks to the hit movie starring Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, everybody's heard of the men in black or the MIBs. The premise of the movie is that the members of this secret group protect the earth from the scum of the universe. Well, that's, I guess, a, a simple explanation for something that's a lot harder to explain. The truth is that nobody really knows if these guys are government agents, aliens in disguise, or just a group of intelligence operatives trying to keep a secret. The entities are real. There's no question about that. In fact, these mysterious figures have been with us since the early 40s, working to silence witnesses regarding not just UFOs, but many paranormal events. Generally show up when ordinary citizens have an extraordinary sighting or encounter with a flying saucer, its occupants, or some other uh, paranormal entity. They seem bent on intimidating these individuals into not talking about what they've seen. They even attempt to do this with law enforcement officers and military personnel. There have been hundreds, if not thousands, of incidents uh, reported about these men in black, although none of the elusive figures have ever been apprehended. Some of these mysterious figures imply that they're working for the government or the military or specifically the Air Force. And this may well be true. However, the majority are certainly not part of any government on this planet. However, there have been reports of so-called men in black appearing at events that seemingly have nothing to do with anything related to the government. In the movie, the director of the MIB is shown erasing all government files regarding the newly hired member of the men in black organization. And first, it should be remembered that even though they're called men in black, this is not just a reference to their clothing. The word black, when used in this context, means covert, undercover, not seen. It's been reported that when a person enters the intelligence community and becomes involved in operations and projects, all their government files basically disappear. No longer accessible through the normal channels. And when this happens, it's said that person has gone black. I've known a number of people over the years who uh, have, for lack of a better term, gone black. It uh, certainly uh, gives it an in interesting connotation. And there's no way that normal intelligent agencies can have the resources to get involved in all the events MIBs have been reported uh, appearing at. Something more sinister going on than merely trying to cover up some government project gone astray. Um,
Now, complicating matters is the fact that many times it appears the men in black are humanoid-type aliens masquerading as humans. And many people in the military are aware this may be the case. In some instances, um, they're alien men in black. Are some men in black actually full-fledged aliens? Hybrids, perhaps? Dr. Herbert Hopkins was actively investigating a UFO abduction case in 1976. One evening during the summer, a stranger called him on the phone and asked if he could come by and talk to him about the case. And this was in spite of the fact the case had not been publicized at all. Hopkins agreed and hung up the phone and immediately walked to his door to turn on the porch light so the caller could see the steps when he arrived, and he was surprised to see a man walking up the stairs to his porch as he was turning on the light. And he was shocked when the man introduced himself as the person who had just called him. Now remember, in 1976, there were no cellular telephones. So how did he make the call and get there that quickly? The man was dressed in a black suit, black tie, black hat, gray gloves. In the summertime, his skin was a pale, sickly color, and he appeared to be wearing bright red lipstick. In fact, it turned out to be true as Hopkins later watched some of the lipstick rub onto the man's gray glove. The man asked Hopkins to take out the two coins that were in Hopkins' pocket, and stunned, Hopkins did it. He told Hopkins to watch the coins in his hand, and after a few seconds, they simply vanished. Then the man told him, uh, neither you nor anybody else on this planet would ever see those coins again. Then the man said his energy was running low, and he left. And shortly after he stepped off Hopkins' porch, uh, the man simply vanished into thin air. First, one of the acknowledged cases of men in black intimidating UFO witnesses occurred in 1953. A fellow by the name of Albert Bender was the editor of a magazine called Space Review, also the founder of an organization called the International Flying Saucer Bureau. During the summer of 1953, Bender apparently discovered some vital information pointing to the cover-up of the existence of flying saucers by the U.S. government. He had written several articles scheduled to appear in the next issue of his magazine. Next thing he knew, these guys show up at his door, all dressed in black, black suits, black hats, sunglasses. Told him they had read his article, even though he hadn't published it yet. Told him his information was accurate, but he better not uh, publish the article. In fact, he told him he'd better not publish anything more about flying saucers. They said, we advise those engaged in saucer work to please be very cautious. Well... They basically scared him so badly that uh, Bender officially retired from UFO investigations. Then in other MIB reports, a teenager was threatened by MIBs and has photos of flying saucers seized from him. Uh, they make a coin disappear from another UFO witness and tell him your heart will do the same if you talk. And then a former Air Force officer who learned about information on extraterrestrials from NASA was harassed, tranquilized, and later interrogated. Well, in 1967, the U.S. Air Force expressed concern about finding out more about these guys in black who were going around scaring people and saying they came from the U.S. Armed Services. Colonel George P. Freeman, spokesman for Project Blue Book at the Pentagon, uh, issued a statement. He said, Mysterious men dressed in Air Force uniforms uh, or all in black and bearing impressive credentials from government agencies have been silencing UFO witnesses. And we've checked a number of these cases, and these men are not connected to the Air Force in any way. 
We haven't been able to find out anything about them by uh, posing as Air Force officers and government agents. They're committing a federal offense and would sure like to catch one. Unfortunately, the trail is always too cold by the time we hear about these cases, but uh, we're still trying. Assistant Vice Chief of Staff of the U.S. Air Force, Lieutenant General Hewitt uh, Wheelis, sent a memo on March 1st, 1967, to various agencies in the Department of Defense. And according to this memo, information not verifiable has reached headquarters, United States uh, Air Force. Persons claiming to represent the Air Force or other defense establishments have contacted citizens who've uh, cited unidentified flying objects. In one reported case, an individual in civilian clothes who represented himself as a member of NORAD demanded to receive photos belonging to a private citizen. In another, a person in an Air Force uniform approached local police and other citizens who had sighted the UFO, assembled them in a schoolroom, and told them they didn't see what they thought they saw and that they shouldn't talk about it to anybody. All military and civilian personnel, and particularly information officers and UFO investigating officers who hear of such reports, should immediately uh, notify their local Office of Special Investigation offices. Then there's some other encounters with Men in Black that were sent to me by listeners to my radio show. Remember, my show started 30 years ago in California. With the secret intimidations uh, still surrounding um, any event that has to do with flying saucers or alien beings, people who've had these encounters generally don't trust telling somebody who doesn't have a clue if these guys even exist. An individual named Larry sent me a report. He was about 25 years old. He was casually but nicely dressed when he came for an interview, and he reported, uh, you know, I had something very strange happen to me and my buddy. I don't like to talk about it because it kind of scares me. So the one who sent the story to me asked him what happened. He was clearly nervous and even stuttered a little bit. He said late one night in a state of semi-sleep, he felt a presence in his bedroom. And the presence communicated with him and let him know it was from another world. Larry asked why all the secrecy and if they were real, why didn't you just show up in the daytime? And they told him that the next time he was with his best friend, and they called him by name, he would indeed see him and he would know it was them. Well, Larry said the entire conversation didn't exactly take place using words. It was more like he understood what they were thinking and feeling without actual words. I know this sounds kind of weird, but this is very common in human-alien interactions. For the most part, none of the aliens use verbal language. It's all telepathic, and sometimes it's in the human's own language. Many times it's a combination of feeling, a knowingness, and understanding on a level we have not yet discovered how to describe. And Larry woke up the next morning. He wasn't sure if he'd been dreaming or not. But the experience was so vivid, and unlike any dream he'd ever had before, he thought about it daily for months afterwards. Larry's best friend was now in the military, and he didn't see him for months. When his friend returned home, just in time for the 4th of July, they decided to go down to a local park where some of his family members were holding a big picnic. Two of them were just kind of standing around when a black van pulled up about 50 yards away. Two front doors opened, and two men dressed all in black suits with black hats and dark sunglasses got out. At that point, Larry remembered his dream. Two men opened the sliding door on the side of the van, and two more guys got out. They, too, were head-to-toe in black with wraparound sunglasses. Larry said, uh, first of all, it was hot. It was the middle of the afternoon, well over 80 degrees, and these guys were in black 
suits with hats. Next to two guys who got out of the side looked different. They didn't look human. I can't describe it, but their arms looked too long or something. And they sat down at a picnic table, and they all turned around and looked right at me and my friend. And after that, he got real quiet. Then they just got back in the van and drove off. He said his friend didn't talk about it. He pretends nothing happened, but he knows he saw him, and he knows it. Mary knows. On that note, we could end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow and talk more about Men in Black and some other UFO-related uh, issues. Till then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.